Thanks for tuning in to Christian Medical and Dental Association's chapel. May the message be a blessing to you. the king's horses and I was reminded of this nursery rhyme uh, several weeks ago probably before Christmas when I heard a preacher talk about it or use it as an introduction uh, to a message uh, on a podcast that I was listening to I thought it'd make a fitting introduction to the concept that I want to talk about today so let's remember the nursery rhyme you want to say it with me Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall Humpty Dumpty had a great fall all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. So, what does it mean? Let's look back at the history a little bit. There are versions of this that date back to the late 1700s. Humpty Dumpty was not actually described as an egg until Lewis Carroll uh, had Alice described. Humpty Dumpty in his uh, novel Through the Looking Glass in uh, 1871. Uh, and that concept of Humpty Dumpty being an egg has carried forward. It was actually a popular Broadway play back in the 1800s uh, entitled Humpty Dumpty. But the interpretations of what it means, there are lots of them out there. Everybody sort of applies it to whatever they want to. Some of the early interpretations just said, well, it's, it's a nursery rhyme to help kids understand about breakable things. Others think it may be a reference to King Richard III, who was a humpback, by the way, and he was defeated at Bosworth Field in 1485, and some people think the story, the rhyme's about him. There was one scientific paper out there I saw that uh, used this to illustrate entropy. You physics majors out there, remember the second law of thermodynamics that everything goes to disorder. They used Humpty Dumpty to talk about that. So, a lot of interesting applications today. I want to look at it as a spiritual application. And the question is, why did Humpty Dumpty choose to sit on a wall? Uh, he may just wanted to see things. He also maybe wanted to be seen. There was a mountain climber who was asked, why do you climb mountains? He says, because it was there. Well, maybe Humpty Dumpty just got on the wall for that reason. It was there. But we can come up with our own imagination of why Humpty Dumpty got on the wall. He, he may have wanted to do it as a sign of achievement, recognition, pride. Certainly, Scripture talks to us about the problem with pride. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It may have been pride that led to Humpty Dumpty's fall. And, any kind of time when we are self-reliant on our human ability, it's going to lead to falls. Our carnal nature just uh, in, uh, predisposes that. And there's a little Humpty Dumpty in all of us in that regard. But what about the failed solution? All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty to gun, to together again. I really think this is an example of the limits of human effort. So here's my question. If the problem is rooted in sinful hearts, can governments, legislation, courts, and social systems ever be the solution? Can the king's horses and king's men resolve problems caused by our rebellion against God? Well, let's look at a biblical example of that. 
In 2 Chronicles 15, it's the time of the reign of Asa. Asa was the third king in the southern kingdom of Judah after the reign of Solomon. And it says in 2 Chronicles, for a long time Israel was without a true God. There was no peace to him that went in, went out, or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants. And then in 6, it gives us a really spiritual insight. It says, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. I really like the King James Version there where it says, with great vexations. I like that word, vexations. God brought it about. Does God bring about vexations in our lives, in the world? Things we don't hear much about this morning, these days when you hear the preaching of the word about the wrath of God. But the wrath of God is there. And the theologians that look at this, they talk about the active wrath of God and the passive wrath of God. And yes, there's probably more examples of active wrath of God in the Old Testament. Sodom and Gomorrah was, you know, fried to a crisp by God because of their wickedness. The sons of Korah were swallowed up into the earth because of their rebellion against Moses. In the New Testament, we see more of the passive wrath of God. In Romans 1, we see three times where it says God gave them up or gave them over in another translation. It's allowing the removal of common grace and the removal of specific grace and allowing the natural consequences of sin to take effect when somebody has been rebellious against God. In 2 Chronicles, it says that they were troubled with every sort of distress. They were vexed because of God's wrath. He brought it upon them. Now, one of the things we need to draw a distinction is, is God's not driven by emotions the way we are. And sometimes we project our frailty and emotions upon God. When God has an anger, it's always rooted in justice and in righteousness. Never like our emotions. Our emotions and our anger is often unrighteous, but God's wrath is always righteous and just. And we don't always see that in the moment, but we'll see that in eternity, that God is always just and righteous in the way that he acts toward people. So, again, the important question. When God's wrath brings vexation, what's the solution? Can we expect ever the king's horses and the king's men to put Humpty to Gumpty together again when it was rooted in sin. So I want to apply this both to nations and cultures, and then I want to apply it to us as individuals. Go, go back to Second Chronicles 15. It was the southern kingdom. Southern kingdom, Israel was divided into Judah, and then the northern kingdom, Israel. It says there was no peace for him that went in or came out. There was great disturbance for a long time. It was because the people were without a true God. That's the reason. And what we see that people had turned to idolatry during that time. Idol worship was rampant across both kingdoms. Contemporaneous with this story from Second Chronicles is a story in 1 Kings 18 where Elijah had the contest with the false prophets of Baal and Asherah. You remember that story. It's more memorable than the Second Chronicles story, but they're both at the same time. Um, remember that Elijah said, I've had enough of this. We're going to have, have it out with these false prophets. So he invited the people and Ahab and the false prophets to show up. There were 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, and they came and they had their altars. You remember the story? And the false prophets 
you know, did all their things all day long, cut themselves, trying to get their God to come and consume the, the offering, and nothing happened. At the end of the day, Elijah prayed a simple prayer of faith. And God not only consumed the offering, he consumed the wood, he consumed the stone, he consumed all the water, just lapped it up. And the people saw the power of God, and they turned against the prophets and killed them, and they turned their hearts back to God. Baal and Asherah were the two prominent gods in Canaan at that time. Baal is just a word meaning Lord. The Baal Hadad was the specific god of Canaan. And he was important because his bringing the rain was what brought prosperity. Without rain, it was an agrarian society. They had to have rain for their crops to produce. They had to have the crops for them to have prosperity. So they worshipped him to try to have their crops produce and they would be prosperous. Asherah was considered, and Asherah actually shows up in some other cultures with other chief gods, and she was always portrayed as the wife of the chief god. She was a goddess of sexuality and fertility. And the Asherah poles, it's where they worshipped, and they had their sexual practices. They worshipped sexuality. They worshipped prosperity. Does that remind you of any culture you're familiar with? Probably our culture today. We worship those same things, don't we? Progressively, more and more in our post-Christian culture, we worship the gods of prosperity and the gods of sexuality. So God warned about this back in Deuteronomy 11. Take care lest your hearts be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And in this specific culture, the way the anger of the Lord was going to be applied is that there will be no rain in the land or yield of fruit, no fruit. So, the story of Elijah and the false prophets takes place in the context of a bigger story. The bigger story was that God went to Elijah and said, You go to Ahab, and you tell Ahab, because you and Jezebel and the people have turned to the... Jezebel had these 850 prophets at her table. She housed them and fed them. These are the king and queen of Israel. And... God said to Elijah, go tell Ahab, there's not going to be any rain in the land because you're worshiping idols. For three and a half years, there was no rain in the land. Until Elijah says, we're going to have this contest, we're going to see whose God is God. And God proved himself to be faithful. And the people turned from the false prophets. And they killed them and they turned back to the true God. And when they did, God said to Elijah, okay, go tell Ahab, there's going to be rain. Rain's coming. And there was rain. So God was true to his word. So let's apply this to our culture. It's not the vexation our nation is in. Is it not the results of us turning from the true God and worshiping idols? I think you would agree that it is. So can we really expect all the king's horses and all the king's men to put Humpty Dumpty together again? Is the solution going to be found in our social structure, in our laws, in our Congress, in our courts? Is that ultimately going to be the solution? Now, don't get me wrong. doesn't mean we're not to be there. We are. Absolutely. God, Jesus said we're to be salt and light. We're to be good citizens. We're, we're to have our role in society of being a preservative and be the light of truth. It's very important for us. We're to be there to promote righteous laws. But this is not the primary solution for a nation or an individual who has turned from God. You see, righteous laws follows righteous people. 
Righteous laws don't make righteous people. So if you want righteous laws, we need a righteous nation. We need to turn from our idols to a true God. Ezekiel 14. When a land sins against me by acting faithfully, faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would be delivered but in their but their own lives by their righteousness. Just the righteous within that culture will be delivered, but God will bring wrath upon the land itself. In Psalm 146, the psalmist reminds us to put not your trust in princes in whom there is no salvation. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And then in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house those who build it labor in vain unless the Lord watches over the city the watchman stays awake in vain are we trying to build our own house our own nation are we trying to protect it and watch it and keep it at peace we would do it in vain unless the Lord is with us and superintending it um, Something you know, I worked in Russia in the early 90s, from 91 to 94. I spent a lot of time there. I'd go multiple times. I'd spend three months or so at a time. And uh, in fact, uh, in 1992, I got arrested uh, for suspicion of espionage and got put in prison for a couple of days. Uh, I don't think they were so serious about it, but I went and talked to the warden. I said, isn't there a fine I can pay? And there was, and I don't know what happened to the money, but... I got out of jail. I got my out of jail card like in Monopoly. But I was lecturing at multiple medical institutes and giving scientific medical lectures and also giving spiritual lectures. And God was really doing a work into people's hearts. And lots of people turned to God during that time. But I got an interesting invitation out of the blue. I was asked to come speak at Moscow State University. And the topic they wanted me to talk about or what are the benefits of capitalism and democracy? You claim they're better, why are they better? And the theme, I, I was reluctant to take, but I felt prompted to do so. And the message God gave me to give, to explain to them, was that these are man-made systems. But these are systems that chose from the foundation of our country, from the foundation of our culture. These are systems that we wanted to honor God. We wanted to be true to the principles of his word, the scripture. And because we chose to honor God, God chose to honor these systems and make them successful for us. So these are not the only systems that can be successful. A system that chooses to honor God, God will honor. People that honor God, God will honor. And if you can find a way to have communism, I don't know how they would have, but if you can find a way for to have communism honor God, God will honor that. They gave me a really warm reception. It didn't change communism, but at least it planted a seed that we have to have God superintend our lives as individuals and as a nation if we want his blessings upon us. Those that honor God, God will honor. In 2 Chronicles, we're all familiar with this passage. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This was told to Solomon at the 
dedication of the temple. There wasn't strife in the land. This was a mountaintop experience for Israel. But God could see down the road and knew that there was going to be a time where they would turn from him. And they would seek wicked ways. And he was telling them in advance what they needed to do when that happened. We're at that place. The photograph you see at the bottom left there are Ukrainians today following the teaching of this scripture to humble themselves and pray that God might heal their land. We need that in our country as well. So, a little Humpty Dumpty in all of us in terms of the common problems with pride, self-recognition, trying to climb up on the wall for achievement, whatever motivation is there, it's likely to be a carnal motivation. And we need to explore that in our lives. Now, if we're the unredeemed, we need to recognize we're enemies with God. In John 3, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Excuse me. <clears throat> Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is still real, still prominent. And wrath may be just turning us over to the consequences of our sin. We have this problem, all of us. 1 John chapter 2 outlines it for us. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, the pride of life, it's not from God, but it's from the world. These are the idols that we constantly have to battle in our own personal lives. Money, sex, and power. They're the things, uh, Richard Foster has written an excellent book on this if you want to explore it more. But these are the things that can deceive us. And they creep into our lives and suddenly these things have more importance to us than our fealty to God. And when that happens, that's an idol that has replaced God as important. It's happening to us culturally, it could be happening to us personally. Even we as children of God, not enemies of God, but children of God can stumble into darkness and sin. And we can be deceived by one of these idols. And then... God will get our attention. He'll allow vexation into our lives as a means of waking us up and bringing us back to him. So the question is, what about your life? We need to ask a question about our nation, but it starts with us asking the question about our lives. Is there a chaos, a lack of peace? Is there a vexation in your life? Now, there's plenty of reasons in a fallen world to have chaos, chaos in your life that's not due to your own sin. It's the big S sin of fallenness in the world. You know, the, the disciples asked Jesus, well, what about these people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell? Uh, were they worse sinners than anybody else? He says, no, no. The message is you need to repent and deal with the problem of sin. Sometimes it's not specific sin consequences that brings lack of peace in your life but you need to ask the question anytime there's chaos in your life Lord is there some problem that I need to deal with and get forgiveness for is there some sin in my life that I need to deal with we need to ask that as a nation we need to ask that as individuals but we have this promise we have this hope that we're never forsaken I'll never leave you or forsake you 
forgiveness and restoration is just God loves to forgive you and bring you back into his shelter of his almighty wing. He exists for that. He had a plan for that from the beginning of time that he would allow his son to die so that that might happen for us. So when we turn from idols and we turn to the true God, we can turn back to a life and he can bring that peace that passes understanding into our life. It might not be circumstantial peace, but it can be that inner peace that happens no matter what the circumstances are. That's the peace that he promises to us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to, and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all our righteousness. And if you want a lesson in how this works up and down, roller coaster, just read David's Psalms, you know, and hear, read the story of his life. You know, he's on a mountaintop, he's in a valley, just... You know, he has one of these lives, just sort of always a little bit out of kilter. But he had a contrite heart. And he knew how to go back and ask God to forgive him. And he writes about that in his Psalms, and he says that he knows that God, when we come back and ask forgiveness, he will restore the joy of our salvation to us. So, whether you're a nation or whether you're an individual, we can't trust in chariots trust in horses we trust in the name of the Lord our God amen, amen. let's pray father would you uh, through your Holy Spirit help us to examine our hearts and see if there be, be any wicked way in us if we have turned from you and we're not even aware of it Lord just increase our sensitivity and help expose that area so that we might then ask your forgiveness and then turn from that wicked way and follow after you, not some idol, Lord. Father, we need that as a land. We need not to lean to our own wisdom, our own means of deliverance, Lord, not to the king's horses or king's men. But, Father, we want to return to you, our true God. We pray that you would forgive us from all unrighteousness and cleanse us so that we can stand right before you. And know that peace in our hearts and lives. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.